0: Have you ever walked into a dark room, uh, lights are, are all off and it's nothing but quiet and it's almost mysterious and you walk up to the door, you don't know whether to try it or not, but you do because you're used to going in that room and all of a sudden you open the door and lights come on and people stand up and they start popping up from everywhere screaming, surprise! How many have ever had that happen or been part of something like that? No? How many of you ever heard that it does happen in the human experience? Okay. How many of you are not really here today, even though physically it looks like you are? Okay, good. Have you ever been in a close personal conversation and, and, and the one who's speaking leans in close to you and looks you right in the eye and says, surprise, surprise, and you're waiting. You want to know what's coming. Well, If you've ever experienced either of those or something similar to it, you have given me a title for this morning's message. Simply, Surprise, Surprise. So let's get open to Luke chapter 12. Uh, If you want to bookmark, start bookmarking at verse 13, and then we're going to move from there on uh, for several verses. But before we do... Let's just ask the Lord's guidance as we get into his word. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the precious word that you've given us. Thank you for its preservation. Thank you that we have it today in a form that we can read and understand and apply to our own Understanding our own minds, our own situations, Lord, thank you that every time we look at your word we find something that's new and refreshing and helpful and today Lord, we pray that will be uh, that will be the case as well. so we pray for every person here under the sound of the voice, and I pray God that there, there will be a blessing to every heart and every need will be met and we do pray for those that are serving outside of these walls and that are that are in the uh, yeah, in, in the marathon uh, situation today and that you will help them to really minister and to serve people. And uh, Lord, we don't do it for praise. We just do it that you might be lifted up and that we might, uh, that we, that we might uh, give you glory. So have your way in our hearts today and bless your church today for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There is a story that's told and I think it's told more like for its humor <coughs> than it is for its exact detail. It's a story about Noah Webster, and Noah Webster is the man who produced the dictionary that bears his name. Legend has it, or the story goes, that during a party, Noah was caught by none other than Mrs. Webster. Now, Mrs. Webster herself, he was caught kissing the maid in the kitchen pantry. When she opened the door and saw her husband in that compromising situation, Mrs. Webster said these words, Why, Noah, I am surprised. Noah Webster, ever the stickler for correct word usage, said, No, my dear, you are amazed. I am surprised. (laughs) Life is filled with surprises. Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Your life has been filled with surprises. Yep. Yes or no? Yeah. Yeah. And if you said no, I'm going to prove you wrong, but I'm not going to make a big deal of it. We're just going to listen to what else the word's going to tell us here. I'm sure we've all noticed this about life. Even Forrest Gump noticed it when he said that great philosopher, he said, quote, life is like a box of... You never know what you're going to get. Either we learn to incorporate the element of surprise into our life expectations, or we miss out on lots of good, sweet, wonderful things. How true. Have you ever stopped to think about how much time and how much effort is spent trying to keep surprises down to a bare minimum? For all of our good-natured humor about surprises, and for all of our ability to cope with surprise, most people really don't like surprises. We would much prefer predictability. Yeah? Yeah? Yeah. I have seen and participated in many surprise parties for people, and there's always, sometimes it's just a, it's just a split second, but there's always a flash of horror on the face of the honoree before they realize that they're actually surrounded by friends and that everything's going to be alright, and they don't have to be scared, but they were so taken aback and so surprised that at first it was like, oh, shock and awe. We're not very comfortable in any situation in which we are not in control of what is happening to us. All right, let me add a word here of instruction for everybody t- as to how to listen to my message this morning. This message is designed to... It's kind of what we call the shotgun uh, approach. We want a little bit of something for everybody. And it's sort of general in its scope. However, every single thing or every every point that is made, every uh, principle that is visited here, Has direct and personal application too. And I think a lot of us could handle some stuff that was going to be said this morning, even in the general sense, if we'd bring it down to our own lives. So let me repeat what I just said. We're not very comfortable in any situation in which we are not in control of what is happening to us. We do not generally like surprises. Would you agree? A few years ago, a very well-known motel chain took advantage of the universal fear of surprise in a nationwide um, advertising campaign. That uh, motel chain characterized their motels as being a place of no surprises. Things would be exactly as you expected they should be when you arrived there. Anybody remember that ad campaign? Who was it? Nobody? Holiday Inn. When you are away from home, tired and preoccupied with business, surprises are not welcome. That was a really good ad, because it struck at the root of a basic fear. Friends, in spite of all our efforts to arrange a predictable world, I don't know how old, I I could point to people and say, I don't know how old you are, but I guarantee for all those years, you've been trying to arrange a predictable world. But in, all, in spite of all of our efforts, there are so many unpredictable elements in life that very few things end up as we hoped, as we planned, or as we thought they would be. One of the greatest sources of stress and one of the greatest sources of anxiety is the necessity of adjusting to the unexpected. Even though we know much of life is going to come at us as unexpected and unpredictable, that isn't the big stress. The big stress is, how do I cope with that? How do I deal with that on a daily basis? How do I live with that in the moment? Many people are unable to, su- to survive even the surprises of life, which often, ha- often happen to us while we're in the process of trying to make the world more predictable. Life is seldom what we plan. 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 Don't wait for it to come on the screen. It's not going to. I'm just going to say it over and over and over so it gets beat into our heads. Life is seldom what we plan. But what happens to us on the it's but what happens to us on the way to what we planned. That's what life is. Life is seldom what we plan but it's what happens to us on the way to what we planned. There's a legend about a man who wanted very much to know where the stock market would be in 30 days. This is a man that was living a number of years ago. If he's living today, it's almost predictable, but it's, uh, if you're in the market, boy, it's the time to be there. But wouldn't anybody who's in the market want to know, well, I wonder what it's going to be in 30 days' time? If he could predict the level of the market at the end of those 30 days, he could invest his assets in such a way that he would make enough money to be secure for the rest of his life. That would be smart investing, although nobody has that guarantee. See, he was thinking he could make his life predictable and eliminate all those life-changing surprises. One morning, he got up and found on his doorstep uh, a copy of the New York Times dated 30 days in advance. And that was a miracle. And he grabbed it and ran to the kitchen table and spread it out. And he's looking, of course, for the financial section. It was the opportunity of a lifetime. How could this happen? If this is a dream, I hope I don't wake up. And as he searched, his eyes fell upon the obituary column and he could not resist the impulse to look. And as he read, he froze as he saw his own name just 30 days away. Now, nothing else mattered. Surprise, surprise. And that story, be it true or otherwise, that story brings me to our Gospel presentation today, because Jesus was asked, first off, to become the arbitrator in a family dispute over the division of an inheritance, and I don't know if there's anything so ugly in all the world. And as he read, he, as, as, uh, Jesus was asked to do this, he just absolutely refused. He didn't even have to think about it, he didn't have to take it under consideration. He, as he listened, he just refused. But he had a word of counsel, and sometimes the word of counsel is not caught, and we don't get what he's really saying, and that's what I want to deal with today. He gave this in a form of a parable. And sometimes when parables are before us in Scripture, we just think, well, that's just some kind of a little teaching aid that Jesus used to kind of drive home a message. But it's not as important as the real stuff that happened. Well, yes, it is. Because most of his teaching is in parables. Most of his teaching is about ordinary, down-to-earth, bottom-shelf kinds of stuff that we deal with every single day. So that's why we need to listen real carefully. There's nothing that can more readily twist life out of shape, nothing that can poison our relationships, and nothing that can kill kindness and consideration and goodness than the unchecked quest for absolute control. Do I have your permission to say that again? Okay. There is nothing that can more readily twist life out of shape, poison our relationships, or kill kindness, consideration, and goodness than the unchecked quest for absolute control. At the bottom of greed... And our lack of concern and respect for others is the desire to gain complete control and have everything our way. And I know you've never met anybody like that, nor have I. And I know you don't have, the person next to you doesn't have someone sitting next to them that would be that way. But the desire to dominate people and situations almost, and don't think right this second about anybody else. Keep the circle of chalk around yourself and yourself only, and I'll do the same. The desire to dominate people and situations almost always leads to a level of disrespect and pettiness that wounds everybody in sight. Nothing kills relationships and wounds people like pettiness. Everybody in sight gets hurt. It crushes the more gentle souls. It angers and disgusts everyone else. and n- n- everyone's a loser. It's a lose, lose, lose situation. The overbearing need to dominate essentially kills the spirit of any civil consideration one to the other. There are some who, in the absence of the power of power to dominate with a strong personality, and then they can't quite get there, they will try to dominate with their wealth and their prestige and their position and their possessions or what have you. Now, it is true in our kind of world, in our kind of society, that wealth is power. But would you make a note of this? Wealth is not all powerful, it gives a kind of control, it does. But it's not a total control or a complete control. And certainly, it's not a permanent control. And Jesus is going to bring this up and prove all of these points as we read. So we start to read in Luke 12, verses 13 and 14. Read along if you'd like or follow along. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here to get started. So someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher... <laughs> Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? How come I'm the referee? Now there tends to be an intoxicating illusion here, in excessive wealth that numbs one's higher sensitivity and blinds people to reality. Someone is alleged to have asked uh, Andrew Carnegie, is Carnegie, is that name ring a bell? Okay. Um, He was a man of immense wealth, I think that's putting it kind of mildly. And if you've ever visited the uh, New York City or the Newport, Rhode Island area or any other place that he inhabited, uh, you can understand, start to understand the immensity of his wealth. Uh, Even if you go into other places where, uh, uh, Pittsburgh for instance, Um, yeah, Carnegie, Um, immense wealth. Someone asked him one day, Mr. Carnegie, how much is enough? I want you to hear his reply. I want you to hear his reply. Andrew Carnegie said, just a little more. See, the person who tries to control the world with wealth is like the man who drinks alcohol until he feels good. So what happens in that mind for that man? He reasons that if the amount he has imbibed makes him feel good, then twice as much will make him feel twice as good. So we're all touched by the illusion, every one of us. How many of you really feel that if you could win the Publisher's Clearinghouse sweepstakes, that it would smooth the wrinkles out of your blanket and get your life in manageable units that you would love and love and love and just inexplicable. Mm-hmm. I know many are going to sit there and say, oh, not me, I wouldn't want that. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm. All right. I hope you win it because I'm just thinking of the tithe. Say, <laughs> <laughs> so would you take that money? You betcha. I don't know where any of the money comes from that comes into this church, and I'm not going to stand at the door and figure it out. Bring it on. See, a lot of people I know feel that the root of evil is the lack of money, not the love of money. (laughs) Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. And for some of us, we feel like the lack of money is the root of all evil. Now I'm going to pick it up at verse uh, 15, if I may, and I'm going to read a few more verses. We're just going to keep kind of jumping through this chapter, if you will. Then he said to them, watch out. You know what? When Jesus says watch out, what should we do? Mm. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. (coughs) Excuse me. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, the man did, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, (laughs) you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Now take life easy. Say it with me. Eat, drink, and be merry. Like throw caution to the wind, in other words. You got her made, you're on the downhill slide, everything's great. But God said to that man, he, get, he, he called him by name right here, if you're wondering who it was. What did He say? Cool. You fool. This very night your your life will be demanded from you and then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Surprise, surprise. Life is filled with surprises. The man in the parable, Jesus tells, appreciates the fact that his wealth has brought him security and that's great. And it seemed like he was relishing in that fact. Everything was okay. It gave him predictability for the world he lived in. That's wonderful. It eliminated the element of surprise. So he proceeds to try to solidify and extend this benefit in a manner which in God's economy has predictable results. Not only does he discover he has limited control, he finds there are some things over which he has no control. No control. Do you ever find that in your life? You find there's some things you thought you had control, but you don't have quite the control you thought you had. And then there's some other things you just don't plan—you plan don't have any control. They're going to happen no matter what you say, what you do, where you go, how much you spend. It just doesn't matter. The man is then hit with the ultimate of surprises, which eventually is coming to us all. It's coming to us all. And, and I tell you, it'll come as a surprise even if you're ready. I have a weird sense of humor, as most of you know, most weird people do. But I read obituaries, and when I read an obituary that somebody died at the age of 99, and they died unexpectedly, <laughs> no, really? You've never read that? Yeah. yeah, it's in print. And I think, well, well, I mean, we did just have a friend pass away, it was 103 just last week, but, you know, how long are most people thinking... Well, that could be expected. It was 99, but she died unexpectedly. Um, Anyway, just just to remind you that it's coming. It's the ultimate surprise and we're all going to face it. And he's told that his name is listed in the obituary column in the next day's edition of the Jerusalem News. And he's told that all that he has accumulated will be of no value whatsoever to him. Doesn't matter. He's leaving it behind. Someone said when the dead man died, how much did he leave? And someone else said... He left it all. He left it all. There are no pockets in the shroud. You're not taking it with you. That's why you ought to be sending it on ahead. and and, and, and so you're, whatever you've accumulate, uh, accumulated accumulate is not going to be of any value to you. And he, he's God's trying to get a message across to him, but it's a little late and in fact, What you have accumulated, sir, is going to be passed into the hands of somebody else. And that doesn't sit too well with a lot of people. And what happens then is it's going to be argued over. And everybody involved here, and some who shouldn't even be involved, are going to want their piece of the action, right? And finally, it's going to be divided between the lawyers, the IRS, and a few of your kinfolk. So it is, said Jesus, with anyone who heaps up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I have spent, not spent, I have invested more than 44 years as a minister of the gospel, trying to be faithful to the word of God and to the call of my life. And I've been trying to teach people, and I haven't done much of a job of it, I will admit, but trying to teach people to be generous. Not because the church needs their resources in order to survive. Not that at all. But because generosity will add an element of richness to life which is far more gratifying than money or possessions. Far more. And I could add money, possessions, position or power. The truth is, we're all going to be generous someday. Huh? Because we're all going to be giving it away. All of it. Uh, Most of us won't be around to enjoy the scene. You can kind of picture it maybe or uh, visualize it. But we will finally one day be giving it all away if there's anything to give away. Well, if you follow me, I'm down in verse 21 now, and I'd like to read a few more verses, just to keep us tuned in to the parable. So here's what he says in verse 21. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves. That's so important, that little phrase. For themselves, but is not rich toward God. Just compare. Just see the juxtaposition here. For themselves toward God. And then verse 22, Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are Than the birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? I think, on the other hand, we take hours away. So I've lost a lot of hours. I don't know about you. Since you can't do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? That's a little verse that never kind of gets spoken to, but I want you to zero in on that verse. Since you can't do these little things, why are you worrying about all of these other things that you have absolutely no control, not even any business worrying about? If Jesus only used today's vernacular, he'd say, hey, what's the deal? Get with the program. And we'll leave it there for just a minute. If I've learned anything, (laughs) sometimes I sit and think, what have I learned in over 70 years of living? I don't need a very full tablet to write that down. What have I learned? But I've learned one thing. Life is always going to surprise me. I don't care how ready I am for anything. I'm gonna be surprised. Things didn't turn out the way I thought they might. I could keep you here for two hours telling you about my road my road trip plan. How my life was gonna go, where it was gonna go, what was gonna happen, and so on. Look, we wouldn't get to the first mile marker. And it would be oh wait, I've got to change that. No, that didn't happen. No, I didn't do that. Oh, I did that, but I now I'm just I'm just doing surgery on my own soul here this morning and I hope maybe you'll open yours up a little bit maybe you can identify with me things didn't always turn out the way I thought they might and rarely is the future in the in the form that I expected it to be and I look ahead and I think well it's not the way I was I would have written this uh, for the future if there is any but, Anyway, we're going to live with this, or this, or this, or this. And in spite of all that we do to make our lives predictable, I hope you're listening, there are so many unexpected elements in life that we seldom end up where we thought we were going to end up, and our children seldom end up where we thought they would when we looked down at them in their little cribs and we dreamed all those dreams and fantasies for them. brats. (laughs) Come on. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. You had a dream for you. You had a dream for your children. You had a dream for your future. You had a dream for life in general. You had a dream for how it was all going to stack up so that you could get to a certain point and then another certain point and then another chapter and so on and so forth. I remember a very famous actor who said that when his son was born, he actually had a fantasy about what would take place in the next 25 or 30 years in, in that life. He said he saw it one day. He saw his wife, he and his wife, seated in a great auditorium. And of course, by now, they were gray-haired and very dignified. And and, and then he said he saw his 25-year-old son mounting the great stage with a banner strung across it announcing the occasion of the annual Nobel Prize presentations. He said that in this fantasy, he could see this good-looking, strapping 25-year-old man step up to the microphone after he received his Nobel Prize and say these words, quote, I want to thank my wonderful parents, whose wisdom and encouragement have guided me to this day. End of quote. By the way, were any of you those parents? Are those parents here today? Are they down at MDI? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Surprise. 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 Hey, be honest with me, parents. How many of us have looked at a son or daughter or a grandchild and held in our hearts some fantasy or dream about what they would, not could, would accomplish? And most of us have already lived long enough to realize that no matter how wealthy, or how influential, or how smart we may be, no matter how hard we try to direct and and, uh, control those lives of the children or grandchildren, they seldom, if ever, end up where we thought they would or should. And so I read in verse 27 these words, Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if you haven't seen the beauty around you here in our part of the country to right now in this season of the year, open your eyes. Take a look. I know a lot of you are putting pictures up and you're taking pictures and you're sending. It, wonderful. If that's how God, God says, Jesus says, if that's how God clothes the, the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? And then he puts a little dig in. <laughs> you of? You of? Yeah. Maybe we should be called Little Faith Community Fellowship. No, that's not funny. Um, um, Jesus called these people in the parable, you of little faith. And I don't know that they worried any more than we worry today. I don't know if they're any more anxious and concerned about things we can't control than we are today. And maybe if he looked at us, he'd say, well, no, that church should be called little faith community. I hope not. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. Why? Because he's a good, good father. We sing this song in this church with gusto. I mean, we just feel it. And I watch people worship. Now I want to see people listen to the word of God right here. He said, do not worry for the pagan world runs after all this stuff. But your father knows what you need and when you need it. But seek his kingdom and then these things will be given to you as well. And these things, I believe, are the things that he knows you need, not want, but need. Need and greed are quite different. Oh. Permit me to ask you, how many of us sitting in this room this morning thought, let's start with 10 years ago, I could go back further, but let's just, let's just work on 10 years, nice round number. How many of us thought 10 years ago that you would end up where you are today? And I don't mean what church you'd be in or any of that kind of thing, but just your life. See, life is, the changes in life are kaleidoscopic. In other words, if you ever worked a kaleidoscope, you, you, you know the beauty of it, but you can't fathom all those pieces, how they work together, <laughs> can you, T- to bring that beauty and to bring that, that one picture. And those, those changes of life are such that we can't possibly predict what's going to happen. You say, well, I'm going to do this and this and this and this. If I do, then... I'm going on a straight line and I can predict what's going to happen. You can't predict how things are going to change. You can't predict how unpredictable things will become. You can't predict how your own life will be changed and how that will change the course of your plan, how our own life experiences are such, we should be able to see that there is a vast area of life over which we do not have and perhaps we never can have and more than likely we never will have any kind of meaningful control. It's for this reason Jesus taught us that we shouldn't seek control in this manner. We shouldn't be after control. Control shouldn't be a word that we care about. We should do what, he said? Seek first the kingdom of God and do what is right. Well, that's a mouthful right there, isn't it? Wouldn't that be a motto for life? We don't need a whole lot of other sayings and, and, and verses and plaques and mottos. huh? Just seek first the kingdom of God and do what is right. Wouldn't that stand you in good stead? Wouldn't that help you figure out what's going on and who's really in, console, in control? And the things we need for security in an uncertain and insecure world will be given to us in due time. You know, that bears repeating. Over and over and over, it bears repeating that we should seek first the kingdom of God and what is right. And the things that we need for security in an uncertain and insecure world will be given to us in due time according to God's plan. That's as neat a package as I can put it in. But our quest for control is often seen in the specificity with which we ask God to do things for us. And I'm going to just stand here today and suggest that probably nobody in the room has ever heard a preacher preach on this. And I'm not going to go off on a tangent, but I want to mention about specificity in prayer or in asking God or telling God what the next plan is or what the next move is and how dangerous that is. Sometime this specificity... Borders on telling God not only what we need, but how to deliver it. How, and when, and through whom. Hello? Hello? If you haven't been there, you are a rare breed. Let me suggest that anytime our expectations get too specific, we are in danger of frustration and utter disappointment. You say, Well, aren't we supposed to pray specifically? And aren't we supposed to tell God exactly? No, you don't have to tell God what you need. He knew that before you knew you had a need. You say, Well, aren't we supposed to tell Him what we want? You can tell them what the desires of your heart are, but make sure they're in line with the will of God. Make sure they're in line with His Word. Make sure they're in line with His plan for you. I think it's easier to just seek first the kingdom of God and do right instead of trying to be God. And we must while I'm on the subject, I gotta say we must tackle our hurts and our failures and be willing to take the long look at ourselves. Say, but I'm hurt. I'm in a situation and I got hurt. Well, when did that happen? Oh, 22 years ago. <laughs> I don't even know when it happened. It, it, I just live with it all this time. Get. You've got you to gotta get this settled. Take a long look at yourself. Tackle your own hurts. If you don't heal what hurt you, you're going to continue to bleed on people who didn't cut you. Yeah, yeah, he did this to me, and I, boy, it just tore my, my heart out, and it just ripped me up, and it just left me, yeah. And she's a awful, and they are awful, and they did this, and... I've just been in pieces ever since, and I'm just feel shattered and I'm you need to heal what's hurt instead of just bleeding everywhere. you know what you're doing? You're affecting and hurting and marginalizing a lot of people that had nothing and have nothing to do with any of that, not to mention that you're hurting yourself. I know that's tough stuff. But that's where some people stop. In his quote-unquote confessions, St. Augustine pictures his mother, famous praying woman, her name was Monica, and she prayed all night in a seaside chapel that her son would not set sail for Italy because she didn't want him leaving her side and she didn't want him going that far afield. And she wanted Augustine to be a Christian and he, he hadn't committed his life to the Lord at this time. And she couldn't bear losing him from her own influence. And she thought if, if so far she had not led him to Christ, how much further would he be from the Lord if he left for Italy and maybe didn't even come back? But even as she prayed, Augustine sailed for Italy. And there he met a man by the name, if you're a Bible historian, you know the name of Ambrose. Ambrose persuaded Augustine to be a Christian. Need I say much more about St. Augustine? He became a Christian in the very place from which his mother's prayers would have kept him. Hmm. Thus God had to deny the specific form of her request in order to grant the substance of her desire. You be very careful with your specificity. God works in mysterious ways in our lives. Say, well, explain it. Well, it wouldn't be mysterious if I could explain it. No, but that's how simple it is. God works in mysterious... If you know anything about geopolitical things, you know that God works in in mysterious ways, even in the life of the world, the cosmos. What's going on now on the planet? Those of us in our generation, we think, "Oh, well, this is new. This is different. This has never happened." This look, know a little bit about what has transpired for the last six thousand years, and understand that these kind of mysteries have been going on for a long, long time. And God works His will through strange people, and even stranger circumstances, at strange times. And he's not bound by, by our limited vision of possibility. Aren't you glad? Amen. How big is our God? What kind of little box have we got him in? Therefore, we should let God be God. Let him do it his way. Even if it does surprise us. I use another name, familiar to me, may not be to you. I'll give you a little background. His name is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was the most famous 19th century preacher. He was a pastor in London, pastored a huge tabernacle there. He became known in the preaching community as the Prince of Preachers. Half of my study is Spurgeon books. Half of my Spurgeon books I've never opened. You can tell that, can't you? As a young person... Charles Spurgeon had a lot of spiritual problems. His mind was filled with doubt. That doubt seemed to stand between him and meaningful relationship with God. Now, he went to church. And then he got to a place in his life where he went from church to church, and he went from minister to minister. And he kept trying to find someone or something or some place that could help him find some spiritual satisfaction for his soul. So one day, he went on a wintry Sunday to a particular Methodist church where he had heard that there was a minister who was good at a lot of things, but particularly good at helping people such as himself. People trying to you know, that were seeking and trying to find themselves spiritually. The weather was very bad that day. Very, very bad. and There was only a handful of people in the church. I've gone to church to preach on Sundays like that. I can remember going when there were three people. I can remember preaching to four people. And so it really does happen. There were only a handful of people. And so the time for the service to begin came and passed, and nobody showed up to lead. No preacher, no minister, no no, no no pastor. About 15 minutes later, as people were sitting, just kind of wondering what was going to happen, one of the laymen, one of the elders of the church, got up and said to the congregation, it appears that our pastor's been snowed in, or he is otherwise hindered, but, it, but so that we don't have, we, we haven't come here today in vain, if you don't mind, I'll read some scripture and I'll offer prayer. That's not what young Charles Spurgeon was expecting. And by his own admission, he said he was crushed with disappointment. He wanted to hear this specific preacher, and now he's being denied the privilege. So the old layman, with a squeaky voice, no gift of oratory, stands up and reads from the prophecy of Isaiah. And among other things, he read these words. Look unto me, ye ends of the earth. Look unto me and be saved. And when Spurgeon heard these words, it dawned on him that he was sitting there, willing to do almost anything in life in order to generate a religious experience. And here he was being told, all he had to do was open up himself and just open his heart to the mystery of God and that the experience that he had been trying so hard to contrive would come. Spurgeon had a very profound and a deep spiritual experience based on this insight on that cold, cold winter morning in London. In a more, in a more than half-empty church, where an inexperienced layman simply read some scripture and prayed. When you look back, If you know this history, over the tremendous impact for God that Charles Haddon Spurgeon ended up having, you just have to say, wow, what a God moment! Surprise! Watch it, here it is. The Prince of Preachers, think of it, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. The experience for which he longed and which he received did not come the way he expected. But I can stand here today because I've been blessed and say, but thank God it came. It didn't come through the person even through whom he had expected it would come. It came in a most surprising way form. It has been suggested that God's other name might be Surprise. <laughs> Give God room. Don't shut Him away in that small confine of your own imagination, just your little circle. You, 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 you. You love that song so much, you can't sing any other song. Surely He's greater than that. Sure, He is. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Here's the teachable moment. There's a sense in which our spiritual, spiritual maturity, and if you think you haven't matured much spiritually, or that you need to mature, or you need to mature more in the spiritual sense, hear me now. The sense in which our spiritual maturity can be measured in direct proportion to our capacity to live with unanswered questions and unsolved mysteries. Hear this. For all that we know, we really don't know very much. Hmm. For all that we know or even think we know we don't know very much. (laughs) When we reel off the half dozen or so important issues of life such as uh, birth and life and death and the universe and the human mind there, we're done we see that there's a lot more, we have a lot more mystery than we do knowledge. My brother-in-law has a PhD in civil engineering. He is a world expert on hydrology. Don't even ask me to explain what all that stuff means. And he, I remember him saying one time and we were kidding him about having all this education and I said well even I was educated way beyond my intelligence and he said His education only taught him one thing, and that was it taught him the more he knew how much he didn't know. That's a very humble statement, and he's a very humble man, but wow, that stuck with me. The thing is, we have a lot more mystery than we do knowledge, and he's a man who digs and digs and digs and digs into the Word of God. The taste for mystery, which I think is an acquired, cultivated taste, is an essential tool for grappling for reality. You want reality? Don't look to this world and this society and what's out there beckoning for you to come in. Don't look there for reality. Whatever you know about God, we've learned from mystery. He works in mysterious ways. We might even say that God is in the mystery, I was reminded of an old, 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 old song. It's too old to be in our playlist today. By the way, it was written by William Cooper in 1774. So Hillsong hasn't replicated it yet. But it speaks of this higher truth. And it's entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. You may have read it one day as a poem. I don't know. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. He will make it plain. He will make it plain. plain. Well, pastor, though, but pastor, uh, I'm down, And, and I don't know what to do. I don't know why I'm going through this thing at this point in my life. And and I'm really down. I'm kind of down and out. I like what Tony Evans said. He said, sometimes God lets you hit rock bottom, so you'll discover he's the rock at the bottom. Yeah, yeah, but pastor, I think I'll just hold, I'm going to hang on. I ask people oftentimes, how you doing? I'm hanging on. I never want to ask them what they're hanging on to. Yeah, that would scare me. I don't know what the answer might be. Oh, I'm hanging on. I'm going to hang tough. I'm, I'm hoping. F- I'll tell you what I'm hoping for, Pastor. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping things will change. Let me tell you something just as lovingly. I'm just going to muster up a lot of love here to say this. Believing things will change. Have so I got all ears? without you changing makes as much sense as watering artificial plants <laughs> i'm glad i got some response i wouldn't expect in humor but that's a very deep and serious statement right there you want something in your life to change but you won't change makes as much sense as watering an artificial plant. Because how long can you water that plant? 24-7. Is it going to change? Is it going to grow? Are you going to get anything out of it? Is anything around it going to change? No. Surprise, surprise. I got the ultimate surprise for you. And I'd like for the worship team to come now. I told them I'd try not to forget, and I tried not to forget, and I didn't forget. So I could be back in their good graces. Here's the surprise I want to leave with you. God is waiting for you to step up. God wants you to take possession of his grace. There's nothing like and nothing compares to the grace of God. We're all about grace or we're not about anything. Listen, we're all about grace or it doesn't really matter. He wants you to apprehend His grace. And He wants you to claim His transforming power to save you and to lead you and to keep you forever. And so lovingly, I urge you, dear friend, do what you need to do and do that today. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is so pointed. Thank you that the teaching parables of Jesus are so personal. And Lord, they just sit right where we are in our lives and they're 2,000 years old and as relevant as tomorrow on our calendars. Lord, just bring home this truth that those who are here without you might not leave the same way they came in, and those who know you might take the next steps of maturity and let God be God in all things. And we'll thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.